Now, for many of us, this was a very troubling week as we watched the events in Washington, D.C. unfold. I got an alert that this was going on, and I turned on uh, the news to see what was happening, and I was very troubled by what I saw. I didn't know how to make sense of what was going on. A protest uh, turned into an assault on the Capitol, and images like this one popped up on my screen where people in various forms of battle gear and with backpacks um, stormed the people's house. And I had questions like, what is going on here? Am I able to believe what my eyes are seeing? What are the intentions? What, what's the purpose of this? What is going on? And in that moment, uh, I, I confess to you, I had a, a moment of panic that I don't think I have felt since the events of 9-11 as I wondered about how fragile our democracy is and this nation that we live in. And we've lived through a 2020 season of, of contentious politics, and here we are at the beginning of a new year, and there's more of that going on. And I asked the question myself, what's going on? I, I had confidence that uh, rule and uh, this would eventually be um, something that would be short-lived and the authorities would be able to reestablish order. Maybe that was a dream at the moment, but I thought it would happen. But my question was, at what price? And there's this headline from Fox News that said, the U.S. Capitol riots leave five dead, including one uh, police officer or uh, Capitol officer, I guess, who was um, in charge of uh, defending the place. And so uh, to say, watching this, that my heart was deeply troubled would be a very accurate statement. Uh, perhaps yours was as well. I don't know if you saw the events as they unfolded or saw them later on the news as it was recast, but um, I feel like we're living in deeply troubled times and any hope that the, the turning of the calendar from 2020 to 2021 would magically make things better uh, was short-lived. And so the question becomes for us, how do we respond during this time. For those of us who are disciples of Jesus, what resources are there in the gospel for us as we think about this, as we seek to live our lives for Jesus? And maybe for those of us who are maybe thinking about becoming disciples of Jesus or weighing that, what does the gospel, what does Jesus have to say about that? And so we're going to take his iconic words, let not your hearts be troubled, as the title of our study together, and we're going to lean into that gospel truth today. So let's just take just a moment and once again ask the Lord to be with us and to teach us this day. <clears throat> Lord, as, as a people who are living uh, in a nation right now where there's turmoil, where there's suspicion around every corner, where people are stressed and uncertain and have weighty and troubled hearts, I pray that you would minister to us who are gathered here together this day, and even those who are here, the voice of this study um, in a recording later. Would you, would you use this to, to set our lives on the hope of the gospel and who Jesus is, what he says, and what he has to offer? So as we are scattered right now and not together, I pray that your spirit would nevertheless enable us to lean in this moment to, to pull up our chairs, to lean into what Jesus is saying as if our very lives depended upon it. And so be with us as we work our way through these words today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, uh, beginning in chapter 14. We're going to take several of the sayings of Jesus scattered throughout 
chapter 14 and six, uh, through 16 and, and apply them to our lives today. So this is how chapter 14 begins. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Well, let's take that first sentence. Let not your hearts be troubled. And let's ask the question, what is the context? Why is Jesus saying what he's saying at this moment in the life of his disciples? And to understand that, we need to remember what's going on. Jesus is having his last meal with his disciples. They have made the long march to Jerusalem. Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of God. There's a sense of anticipation in the air. There's a festival going on in Jerusalem at this moment, the festival of Passover. And every time this happens, people remember the liberation of God's people from slavery in Egypt into their own land. And now they are, uh, I don't want to say slaves, but um, a foreign power was occupying Israel. The Roman Empire held sway. And so now at this festival, anticipation is high that maybe God would move and the disciples have been all in with Jesus. And so let's just rewind a little bit um, and capture what was going on right before Jesus said these words. Now in chapter 13, verse 31, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now, my friends, if we were to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples, to hear this, to hear these words of Jesus would have caused their hearts to, to reel with excitement. If you've been a part of Mercy Hill Church and you've known these opportunities that we've had to look at what this phrase, the Son of Man, means, you will know the weight of these words. Other people call Jesus rabbi, teacher, even the Son of God, but Jesus' own favorite phrase was the Son of Man. And of course, this phrase is taken from Daniel chapter 7. Remember, at this point when Daniel spoke that word about the Son of Man, they were living under slavery. Their own country had been invaded by Babylon. The leaders of Jerusalem had been exiled to Babylon. And there, Daniel, with God's blessing, rose in power. And he's already survived being thrown in the lion's den. He's already, been, he's already survived being thrown into a furnace of fire. And he is basically an untouchable and God is using him uh, as he serves at the pleasure of a psychopath king who doesn't care about human life, who doesn't care who gets ground up in his machine of politics and power. And so it's in this very troubling time that Daniel himself had a vision. And he said, this is what he heard spoken, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So in Daniel's vision, he sees one, a human figure, a son of man, who is presented before God. And his, to him was, uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting too fast because I'm getting excited about what we're talking about here. Let me slow it down a little bit. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him, this is what's echoing in the minds and the hearts of Jesus' disciples. 
They are all in with Jesus. They've marched to Jerusalem. The revolution is on. Things are about to change. And what they thought, Jesus being the one appointed by God to receive this glory and honor, that's happening right now. And so Jesus said this, but then he says a couple breaths later, these puzzling words, where I'm going, you cannot come. And Simon Peter's thinking about this, and Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter's all in. He's ready for the revolution. He's ready to see Jesus anointed as God's king to whom all nations will come and serve. He's ready to lay down his life for him. And Jesus responds by saying this, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Whatever excitement Peter and the disciples were feeling, whatever exhilaration was in their soul, whatever was rising within them, surely must have evaporated quickly when Jesus tells Peter, the leader of the disciples, you are going to deny me. Betrayal. And that's the context of what's going on here. This is, this is not what the disciples thought Jesus was going to say. This is not going to unfold like they thought. They're all in with Jesus, and now Peter's going to betray him? What does that mean for us? What does that mean for the future? What does that mean for this moment of anticipation we've been waiting for? And it's in this troubling moment that Jesus says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. My friends, let me just pause for a second and say, I think that Jesus means for us to hear him speaking into our own lives when we find our hearts troubled. When we find ourselves filled with anxiety, when we're panicky, when our hearts are troubled by what's going on, I think we're meant to hear Jesus say these words to us as well. But the question becomes, how, how can we not let our hearts be troubled? Jesus, do you see what we're facing? Do you see the trouble all around us? And so Jesus follows up these words by saying, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, it's not extraordinary for anyone to say, believe in God. For someone to direct a person's attention and gaze to God. But Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. And so I think we need to ask the question, who says stuff like that? I mean, if we're getting what Jesus is saying here, this is an audacious claim. And let me just lay it out starkly. Jesus audaciously claims that just as we believe in God, we should also believe in him. In other words, just like we might place our trust in God, Jesus is saying, place that trust in me. Whatever confidence you may have in the creator of the universe, place that confidence in me. Whatever allegiance you give to God, give that also to me. Now, that is crazy talk, my friends, unless it is true. And so Jesus tells them, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
These are earth-shattering words, and they're orienting words for the disciples in this moment. And what I want us to see in the wake of what Jesus said is there are a couple gifts that Jesus wants to give to his disciples. Let's jump down to verse 16 and see what he says. Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, he says, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Here Jesus tells them that he wants to ask his heavenly Father to give a gift to his disciples. He calls it a helper, the spirit of truth. Now, this spirit is the personal presence of God. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to ask the Father to give you his personal presence to be with you from this moment forward and forever. And so in the disciples thinking, the presence of God manifests itself at the temple of Jerusalem. Uh, That's where God has appointed that he would meet with his people. And so his presence is thick in that spot. But now Jesus tells them he's going to ask the Father and the Father's going to send the gift of his personal presence, his Holy Spirit, to be in their lives. The Apostle Paul would later, after he uh, turned from being a persecutor of Jesus and his followers to being uh, an adamant follower and proclaimer of the gospel, would tell the followers of Jesus living in Corinth this thought. He said, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Here, Paul is reminding these followers of Jesus that God has now taken up residence in them. This is the gift that Jesus has given to them. And so Jesus goes on and said, These things I have spoken to you while I am with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. Here Jesus is saying, look, I'm telling you this ahead of time. So that when you receive the personal presence of God to be with you, you will be reminded of everything I've said. Things like what I just said tonight. (laughs) Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. So the first gift that Jesus wants to give to his disciples is the gift of God's personal presence to be with them through all the troubles of their life. And the second gift that Jesus wants to give to them is his own personal peace. Look what he says in verse 14. I'm sorry, chapter 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Here Jesus gives another gift. And he calls it my peace. He's not giving them peace like the world gives. We need to hear this against the backdrop of the Roman Empire, who claimed to establish and to bring peace. The emperors were the saviors of the world, and they established peace. But remember the brutal cost that they exacted. To establish peace, they required blood. And anyone who stepped out of line found themselves at the receiving end of the iron fists of the imperial power of Rome. And many people find themselves crucified. In fact, this picture I have up before you is a picture of the the siege of uh, the city of Jerusalem that happened in AD 70. Josephus tells us that um, the Roman Empire surrounded Jerusalem and basically starved it out. And anyone who tried to escape, they were crucified. And Josephus tells us that uh, the crucifixes 
were so thick that you could hardly walk around the city. So Jesus says, I don't give that kind of peace. The peace I give doesn't require blood from anyone. In fact, Jesus is going to, they're going to find out that Jesus offers his own blood. And so at, towards the end of this time together, Jesus tells his disciples this in chapter 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Let me just pause here for a second. You see the two things that Jesus guarantees in this verse. There are two things that Jesus says you can bank on. In this world, you will have trouble. That's what that word tribulation means, trouble. There's plenty to trouble your hearts here. But the other guarantee that Jesus says is that in him, we can have his peace. And so he says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, I wonder what the disciples of Jesus thought at this moment when he said these words. I have overcome the world. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus knows in a matter of um, perhaps hours that he will be betrayed. His closest disciples will desert him. He will be arrested. He will be illegally tried. He will be brutally tortured and hung on a cross. How can Jesus say, I have overcome the world? You see, my friends, this is what we need to understand of Jesus and the secret of his upside down kingdom. Jesus doesn't require blood of anyone else. He provides his own precious blood. Michael Horton said it very well. He said, Jesus embraced the cross precisely as a king embraces his scepter. To the Jewish mind, anyone who was hung upon a cross was cursed. And it's here that Jesus did take the curse of his people upon himself. But this is also the moment he reigned. And it's no accident, my friends, that the Roman Empire placed a crown of thorns upon his head. It is no accident that Pontius Pilate placard above the head of Jesus as he laid expiring the words, the King of the Jews. Jesus embraced the cross precisely as a king embraces his scepter. There is something different at work in what Jesus is doing in this moment with radical implications for the rest of this world and especially for his followers. Jeremy Tree helps us understand this a little bit further. The cross is the establishment of the kingdom and the resurrection its inauguration. Jesus, yes, was the victim of forces conspiring against him. But Jesus went to the cross as a willing participant in what God was doing behind the scenes. Even though these people meant it for evil, God was at work meaning it for good. And because God... <laughs> condemned our sin in the flesh of Jesus, we get freedom. This is the, the epicenter of the kingdom of God, the cross and the resurrection. And so my friends, this is how the peace of Christ comes to us. And so let me just put it like this. Peace is not found in external circumstances, but it is found in Jesus, 
no matter the circumstances. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But he also says, let not your hearts be troubled. My peace is found in me. So my friends, let's let's get our minds around this and believe it with everything we've got. Peace is not found in external circumstances, but is found in Jesus, the Prince of Peace, no matter what the circumstances. So just two points of application here for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Now, if you're a student of the scriptures and you've, you've read the book of Hebrews, you will know this is an intentional echo of what was said there. In chapter 12, the author of Hebrews says, Let us, those of us who are trusting in Jesus, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand, I'm sorry, the right hand of the throne of God. Here we're told to fix our eyes on Jesus. And if we just look at what that word means in the Greek, I looked it up in a couple of Greek dictionaries, that word in Greek means this, to turn the eyes away from other things and to fix them on something. To view, or another entry said, to view with undivided attention by looking away from every other object. And so my friends, I think what the author of Hebrews is saying here to us as we run our race, as we find ourselves in very troubling times, even like Jesus found himself in troubling times, we are called to fix our eyes on Jesus, to turn them away from other things and to fix them on him, to view with undivided attention Jesus by looking away from every other object. This is what Jesus is saying. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus is trying to get us to fix our eyes, not just on what is going around around us, but to fix our eyes on him. And so that raises the question, how steady is your gaze fixed upon Jesus? My friends, as we see the very troubling things going on in our country and in the world, troubling things that happen in the kind of world that we live in? How steady is your gaze fixed upon Jesus? As you look back over this past week, how steady was your gaze fixed upon the crucified and resurrected King? The second point of application is this. Bring your troubled heart to God. This is is a discipline that we need to learn how to do. There will be troubling times. Our hearts will become troubled. And so we need to learn to bring our troubled hearts to God. And I say that because if if you're anything like me, what tends to happen is we find ourselves troubled and overwhelmed. And we just double down on trying to endure it ourselves. And we don't think about the resources that are ours in Christ Jesus. This is the way the Apostle Paul would put it in a letter to the Philippians. He reminded them that the Lord is near. And he said, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Uh, Paul is, is going over the top here. He tells us, do not be anxious about anything, knowing that there are plenty of things that can cause us anxiety. But he says, don't get stuck there. Instead, present your request to God. Take your troubled hearts to God. 
And so I wonder if, if maybe in our own lives, we can learn how to say things like this. God, this situation has got me deeply troubled. And then tell him about it. Or maybe like this, we could say, Lord, these are the things that are keeping me up at night. And then list the things that are being uh, worrisome for you. Or maybe we just come to a point of desperation. And we say, Jesus, this situation is robbing me of peace. I need you and I need your peace. See, when we do things like that, my friends, we are doing what Paul says to bring our troubled hearts, our anxiety-filled hearts, our, our panicky hearts before the Lord and to lean into him, to bring our request to God. And when we do that, when we pray, we're bringing God into our circumstances. Or maybe more accurately, we could put it like this. We're turning our gaze upon the one who rules over all things for his glory and for our ultimate good. You see, my friends, when we pause and we lean into God with prayer and we tell him what's troubling us, we are fixing our eyes on God, on Jesus. We're believing in God. We're believing in Jesus like he taught us. We're remembering that there is something going on. There is something bigger than these troubles. And we're bringing that to our minds. And so Paul would conclude what he said there to his disciples by saying this, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, my friends, this was a hard-won lesson by the Apostle Paul. It was graciously given to God as Paul, in his own life, practiced the very things that we're saying in the very words of Jesus, to let our hearts not be troubled, but to believe in God and to believe also in Jesus. And so here he says, the peace of God, this peace that Jesus spoke about, it transcends all understanding. Let me put it this way. It's hard to get our minds wrapped around it. It's hard to bring words to it. It can only be experienced. That peace of God, which you can experience in that moment, is what guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I like the way the New Living Translation put it. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. <laughs> Do you hear that? Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ. And so when Jesus calls us to not let our hearts be troubled, but to believe in God, to believe also in Him, that is how we practice abiding in Christ. And so let me put it this way. This is not an original thought to me. Someone said this, I can't track the original source. But sometimes God calms the storm surrounding his children. And sometimes he calms his children in the surrounding storm. And the way God does that is he reminds us that he is with us. We have his spirit. And he invites us to live into the peace that Jesus gives. And so my friends, Mercy Hill Church, may you humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you.